0: Hey, this is Racial Jake. No. Uh, hey, this is Brace Belden here. Uh, no, fuck that. Up. I can't do this without Liz. God, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Hey, it's Brace here. Uh, I don't know why I said that so energetically. I, uh, young Chopsy is laughing at me right now, and I'm humiliated. Anyways, me and Liz have been poring over the uh, the Ghislaine Maxwell documents. This little this little deposition that came out with very large uh, magnifying glasses and also little Sherlock Holmes checkerboard caps. Uh, I've been doing it shirtless because I gained a lot of muscle mass lately. Uh, but to tie you weirdos over, I am actually, uh, having a little conversation with Dr. Alpa Shah, who is the author of Night March, uh, which is about her seven night march with the, uh, the Naxalites, the, uh, the communist party of India, Maoist, uh, uh, in, 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 uh, 2008 and uh, and sort of the it's it's it the book uses that as like a, a lens to really talk about uh, the, the, the adivasis in India, the Maoist movement and just the modern India state. Um anyways, it was a fun conversation and uh, and let's roll it. Then. All right, welcome to the main event, ladies and gentlemen. We have with us today Dr. Alpa Shaw, an associate professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I got that entire intro right, patting myself on the back for that. Uh, Dr. Shaw, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure.
0: So, I, so, so one thing I forgot to mention actually, so should rescind that pat on the back is that, uh, is that you are the author of the book night March, um, a book about your time with, with the, the Naxalite, uh, insurgency in India and, uh, and, and your seven day sort of night well actually seven night March with them. Um, I think maybe some of our listeners may have heard the, term Naxalite, maybe heard the seen the term urban Naxal, maybe written on the internet or something like that. Um, but just at the very basic level, like what is a Naxalite? Well it
1: um, goes back to the 1960s, when an armed rebellion took place in the uh, in a village called Naxalbari in the state of West Bengal, when peasants basically decided to take up arms and uh, demand um, the landlords to cancel all their debts and give the land back to them. Uh, and then this kind of this little rebellion sparked uh, an idea of resistance and rebellion all across the country uh, in India and various kinds of rebellions um, broke out in different parts of the country. And um, this was spearheaded by a uh, part of the Communist Party, which um, basically decided to go underground and fight for a Maoist-inspired... Protracted people's war to take over the country, but uh, te- from the countryside. So the idea was that there was going to be this insurgency that was going to spread from the countryside to the cities eventually Mm -hmm. take over the state and all for the ideal of you know building this kind of communist society which nobody has seen yet um and you know it was you know it was a time when such rebellions uh such movements were taking place in a large part uh of the world um you know there were so many maoist uh armed mm-hmm. rebellions in 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 various countries uh, across the world at that time and um but in India, this this uh, whereas in most other parts of the world, these movements declined. In India, uh, the Naxalite movement, as it became known popularly, because of the roots in this village of Naxalbari, um, has sustained and uh, and is still and is still around and has gained a kind of new salience in contemporary India.
0: And how did you first come into contact with them?
1: Oh well, you know, I was in phd student uh, studying i happened to land in um, these f- forests of central and eastern india amongst india's indigenous people called it's adivasis uh, and i was there for my phd studies and like uh, you know all anthropologists trained at the LSE and this kind of malinovskian tradition uh, going back to this polish anthropologist called Malinowski, we spend a Lot of time uh, doing deep immersive fieldwork so we live for one and a half years to two years amongst the people that we want to learn about you know becoming a part of their lives and by various coincidences I ended up in these forests uh, of eastern India uh, and there among the Adivasis this movement, uh, the Naxlite movement, also was spreading at the same mm-hmm. time as I arrived there. And that was back in, um, that was back in nineteen ninety nine, in two thousand and um, two. and they were trying to recruit um, villagers from the villages that I lived in into their into their movement, and I didn't pay much attention to them. And them at the time, or I didn't take them very seriously, or I took them as seriously as I thought that, oh, these guys are like protection racketeers, Mm -hmm. a bit like the Sicilian mafia, um, you know, coming in with their muscle power into this area and disarming the area, taking away all the arms, arming themselves, coercing people into the movement, or basically reproducing extortion rackets which parts of the state were already involved in taking over you know those kind of markets of protection in the area and that's what i thought was happening um but then when I came back to England, uh, I was watching from afar what was going on back in back in those forests. And I realized that more and more of the Adivasis, these indigenous people of India who I had le- lived with, um, some of the, you know, considered some of the poorest people in India, more and more of them were joining uh, the Naxalites. And this movement seemed to be spreading across the hills and forests of Central and Eastern India. So I became became interested in the question of why, you know, why, why, why that was the case and who were these people. And so I began reading up on their history and became more and more interested in their project and um, realized that I've got to go back, Uh, got to go back and try to understand who these Uh guys are and why the people I was living with were joining them.
0: So you were in sort of the Adavasi area studying these peoples, you know, came into contact with, with the Naxalites. And by the time you came back, had the uh had had like a great deal more of the, the Adivasi joined the Naxalite movement? Was there was there more repression on the on the Adivasi from the Indian state because of that? Like what what was the sort of scene you encountered?
1: So um what happened is I I I thought, well, I've got to go back and try to understand what's going on. Yeah. In, in the meantime, um the um the you know you know how it is when you're trying to do research and you know in a university it takes a long time to get out of your teaching position again and get the means to go back and the time to go back so um by the time i could i could return it was 2008 uh-huh. so yeah the indian prime minister at the time manmohan singh basically declared that these were the, India's greatest internal security threat, mm-hmm. and what that that was at two, in 2006. Um, in by 2008, when I was able to return to the area, uh, the at the same time, these massive uh, a massive counterinsurgency operation was um, was was put in place. So as soon as I, as soon as I went into the area, so did. 100,000 security forces were sent to surround the hills and forests of central and eastern India. Human rights activists at this time said that the reason why this was happening is because the state actually wanted to clear these lands off the people who lived on them which are the Adivasis uh, clear these areas because some of India's greatest mineral reserves lay under these lands and they needed to get rid of the people who lived on those lands in order for the multinational corporations and national corporations that had been promised access to those lands uh, to harvest the mineral resources underneath the lands so that they could get so that they could get in. Um, So these areas, historically, the Adivasis had fought various battles uh, in colonial times uh, against um, measures to try and take the land away from them, and mm-hmm. to a certain extent, they had they had won. You know, they'd won some kind of minimum um, protection, uh, so so lands in these areas could only be sold to another Adivasi. Uh, non Adivasis couldn't buy these lands, so there were there were some legal protections that stopped them from you know outright removing the indigenous people, these Adivasi people, of their land. So. The, you know, human rights activists at the time were saying that, you know, this is a big pretext to basically clear the people of the land so that, you know, so that you can have the, yeah, mining companies come in. Um, And so, yeah, at the time... um, Uh, I began my field work. Also, all of these forces were sent in. But uh, I managed to stay in those areas for a year and a half. And it was a very different story to the one I had encountered previously. Uh, You know, on almost every single Adivasi household, there was somebody who had been a part of this movement or who knew people who uh, had been a part of the movement or who had, you know, so th- it, there were kinship networks flowing in and out of the yeah. Naxalite movement from all of these Adivasi areas at the time.
0: Yeah. The the Indian states um, sort of entering into those areas or, or rather like cordoning them off and then sending troops in to sort of clear this insurgency it isn't really like something that we see in, in present day America, but it does remind me a lot of uh, America's, um, uh, a, a war on war on the indigenous people of this this, this country as well, and and d- essentially putting them into smaller and smaller reserves or d- diffusing them throughout, like you know the, the 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 landscape elsewhere. You mentioned, I think, in the book uh, or, or in the preface that that when you did try to go into these areas, that most people actually weren't allowed to go in that like journalists, human rights activists uh, were, were essentially cordoned off from outside this area. And I think a lot of sort of from an outsider's perspective of modern day India is we see constantly all these talk about security threats and internal enemies and things like that. And, uh, and, and what does that actually like look like in practice there?
1: Well, at, at present, uh, you know, things are, things are, things are really bad. Um, I mean, at the time in 2000, back in 2008, um, yeah, increasingly, any journalist or scholar or human rights activists who wanted to go into this area, they couldn't go in with, with, without having, you know, state security come with them, mm-hmm. uh, which basically would, you know, make the whole exercise, like, redundant because, um, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, you don't want to be followed around by the police, which everybody is af- who everybody is afraid of in those areas. Um, but people were going in, you know, people were... Like tra- taking the rest school were were going were going in but at the same time the indian state was increasingly you know putting false charges against people who are going in starting yeah. to imprison people and now of course uh that kind of imprisonment that was taking place in the forests first of the adivasis <laughs> then of the then of the um activists who were trying to kind of fight for their cause um that has kind of become a much more nationwide affair we've got activists human rights activists um academics um uh lawyers being being imprisoned all over the country as 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 urban naxals in you know allegedly urban naxals so when i left uh when i left the strongholds uh you know the the state was having had definitely had the upper hand over over these insurgents. They were wiping out the area, uh, as you said, brace. You know, um, they were getting they they were getting reduced to smaller and smaller pockets. The guerrilla the the guerrilla areas were getting reduced to smaller and smaller pockets, and um, the state was basically, uh, yeah, had ex- extending its military barracks all over all 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 over. The, even the most remote part of the forests. And, um, but what happened is that in, from about 2016, 2017, 2018, 2018, especially very recently, suddenly you had people who were being called urban Naxals, uh, mm-hmm. Naxals who are allegedly, uh, you know, based in urban areas, and um, they were being arrested as urban Naxals. And these were usually people, these were people who had for years been um, fighting for the rights of Fadivasis, fighting for the rights of Dalits, fighting, these are, you know, the previously untouchable groups in India, fighting for um, uh, the... You know informal workers you know fighting as part of trade you know trade view alternative trade unions mm-hmm. uh, fighting um fighting for political prisoners fighting um so these were people who were you know um, had been activists for a very for for very long periods or a- academics as well or students who started to be called urban naxals in in mm-hmm. the cities um and so this this weird kind of paradoxical thing was happening which is on the one hand the move this naxalite movement this the, the insurgency was being crushed in the forests but on the other hand the state was arresting a whole load of people uh, as urban naxals so the whole idea of naxalism was being revived uh, across the country as more and more people were getting arrested as as urban naxalites You know, there was this kind of strange moment uh, a couple of years ago when um, uh, there was a Twitter (laughs) up search when people Mm -hmm. were saying, you know, oh well if that person is an urban Naxal me too an urban Naxal, you know come and and get me, you know, me too an urban Naxal, and so it was kind of paradoxical that, you know on the one hand they were trying to clamp down on this movement, but on the other hand uh, the idea of uh, Naxalism was being used to keep alive, you know, democracy itself
0: yeah. uh, in India. So when you were out in the jungle uh with 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 the with the Naxalites and with the ADVC um, what what was the uh what was the threat from the state like because the one thing that like you always read about or mostly when you read about actual Naxalites rather than like urban Naxalites or somebody just using it as a pejorative in an op-ed or whatever uh, is attacks on police stations attacks on sort of these rural militias um which seemed to pop up in basically every country with an insurgency, and especially ones with landlords. Um, what was what was like their interactions with the state while you were there like?
1: So uh, the nationalists themselves were kind of very. It was all very defensive. So they mm-hmm. would ba- they were basically trying to you know. Keep control of the few territories they had, so they would they they would try they were trying to prevent the state from going into those areas. So they'd like lay land, manual landmines mm-hmm. uh, along the roads. Uh, so um, typically, what happened is the 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 state forces were afraid of entering these areas, and so they do so only like once every three weeks or so, and then they do so with um a whole like line of battleships and then all their soldiers would march on foot in, in, in front of the battleships because the roads all had these mi- landmines, you know, they were afraid that there were landmines laid under mm-hmm. them and that they would, uh, you know, they would trigger them off once, uh, once one of these vehicles was on top of them. Uh, and so, you know, there was this kind of descend, you know, ascending into the forest every three weeks or so. Then the state would, the state forces would occupy the schools or the health centers or any Mm -hmm. kind of public building they could find, stay there for a day or two, and then they'd go out on all these, like, combing missions. So they'd go out and try and, you know, patrol, comb the area looking for these gorillas, Um, you know. And and in that process, a lot of, you know... um, Villagers who were living in those areas were taken and you know used as human shields to go out. Um, also a lot of interrogations taking place uh, in those areas. So uh, and you know I mean, the police is notorious everywhere in the world yeah, as we yes. as we so as we so well know. So there were all kinds of stories of people you know who had um, yeah had. Had been beaten, tortured by state forces. I mean, everybody, almost everybody, had stories of people they knew or people themselves, you know, who people in their family who'd had awful things happen to them um, at the hands of at the hands of state forces. So at the time, um, people were very, very afraid of of the of the state forces descending, you know, ascending into ascending into the hills. Um, and, uh, you know, and of course at that time, the Naxlites themselves would kind of run off and go off into a different, uh, different mm-hmm. forest or they'd, uh, they'd merge, uh, in, in, in the villages. So, um... Yeah, um, it was, you know, but at the same time, you know, the state itself was very, uh, uh, you know, getting, getting, um, uh, realizing that the way to recruit people from these areas, you know, they had to co-opt them. So yeah. they started recruiting from the villages, you know, they started recruiting into their qu- counter insurgency forces. So um, they created this special, these special forces, uh, like called, you know, names like the Jarkan Jag Mm -hmm. or the cobra and uh, these like wonderful sounding names and basically these were all the tribal people the adivasis from those areas they were being recruited into those and then those were the people that would be the people that would be sent at the front of the line uh, into into the battleship area so what essentially was happening I think you know a process I was seeing unfolding was how people were being used against each other, you know, brothers being used against brothers or, um, uh, um, to, to, yeah. Um, cause really the air, er- these areas, the state had pretty much neglected the Adivasis for more than mm-hmm. 60 years. So, you know, as the Adivasis, there are various different groups of tribal people, um, who live in these Hills. They, they in total, you know, they say that the tribal population of India makes up about a hundred million people. Um, uh, but which is they- which
0: is so wild because they're minor. I don't know. That's just that's a that's it's in terms of like the population of America. That just seems like such a large number for a minority.
1: Yeah, ex- well, it is huge because you know yeah. India is yeah India hugely is a populous country. country. Yeah. Um, but and and they're spread out, you know, in different parts of the country. There's a lot of Adivasis in the northeast, there or very northeast of India. Their story is different. These are the Adivasis of central and eastern India, and they also consist of various different groups. Um, and then there's also non-Adivasis who are also living in these areas. So it's a complex kind of social social um, landscape. But essentially. these areas have been neglected by the Indian state for more than 70 years. So the areas that I lived in, you know, uh, even in 2008, no electricity, no running water, Mm -hmm. no roads, no, you know, everybody lives in mud houses. I mean, these are super... yeah the state infrastructure was there was basically sent there through its forest guards uh to who were there to um yeah take the forests away from the people and through mm-hmm. the police and the police had been you know both of these had very very bad reputations people have very bad memories of of uh, fully forest guard and police um oppression in these in these areas but Essentially, over, over these, these last years, what the state has been trying to do is infiltrate the areas, bring both the security arm and the development arm and take in more and more people yeah. from the Adivasis into the structures of the state. So you see this kind of new kind of class differentiation that's taking place in the area uh, as a result of um, the the, yeah, the state forces going going in and also as a result of the lights operating in the area.
0: That that reminds me a lot of um, in the Kurdish insurgency in Turkey, there's sort of a similar dynamic with the, uh, you know, the sort of underdeveloped neglected areas in the eastern part of the country or southeastern part of the country uh, where the insurgency started, uh, you know, in sort of the same sort of style, you know, revolutionary base areas, um, you know, creating, I guess, an, an army in the countryside where the state would actually recruit um, villagers from the same families as people who were in the guerrilla uh, with money or threats or something like that, um you know the same exact sort of police presence um uh, mixed with village guards there and uh and essentially the same dynamic and it seems like that 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 is just like how it plays out i mean it's it 's essentially the same thing in the philippines as well um yeah and they're all, they're
1: learning from each other i mean you know yeah. is a major you know major state i mean they're learning from the u s experiences they're learning yeah they're totally yeah. um i mean the u
0: s did the, it in Vietnam too.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, that's why I bring up bring up the US. So they are they're learning from the best of kind of counterinsurgency, you know, expertise that is out there globally. Mm-hmm. Um and uh yeah, and but yeah, there's lots of there's lots of parallels with what's going on in in the Kurdish areas. Uh yeah. with the PKK, of course, that was also originally kind of Maoist Maoist inspired that yeah. rebellion.
0: So you mentioned before that the Indian state and sort of these multinational companies desire the resources that are in the Adivasi areas uh, and, and, and essentially like want to, uh, you know, develop, develop these places. But what about the Adivasi themselves? You know, you mentioned in the book that they, they often go and work for a few months in a city, at construction jobs at really like low paying, um, uh, you know, high risk, uh, high risk work. Um, Like, how how essentially, like, what is their place in, like, the modern Indian economy?
1: Well, yeah. um, On the whole, the picture is extremely bleak because what's you know back in these forests they at least have a bit of land they have a you know they have some forests uh and they have a very rich life and culture and you know lifestyle based on um forest and access to the forest and based on access to the land so for example there are all kinds of systems which don't really exist in the rest of india so uh, and, and in in the same way anymore so there's you know uh, people like share labor to build houses they share labor there's a kind of form of labor exchange it's not a very monetized economy um there's lots lots of um uh um, the, the status that women have within society is uh, much more you know women are much more highly valued than than the rest of Rest of India, which is very much a land of, you know, as they say, homo hierarchicus, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, so these communities, partly because I think they've been able to maintain access to land and forests, ha- are much more egalitarian within themselves um, than a lot, a lot, lot of the rest of Indian society, and you know, this is, I mean. Of course, there is hierarchy. There are forms of hierarchy, so it's it's a relative comparison that I'm making. Um, but what's happening with um, uh, as they as they lose this is that they're basically yeah forced into what is uh, global global precariat really um so as you as you mentioned you know uh, already people are kind of migrating for a few months of the year as seasonal migrants to work in brick factories or construction sites in far away parts uh of the of of india uh, far away from where they are um uh, and you know to going to calcutta or delhi or uh, building what is essentially you know the brand new India, Um, but they're going to be kept out of that India uh, because essentially, you know, they're going to build it, they're going to, you know, work their... Yeah, they on, on in very bad con- terms and conditions of work. So I went mm-hmm. and lived actually with some of the brick kiln workers uh, from some of the villages where I, I lived. So I went with them to the, the brick factories in West Bengal and, and stayed with them for a week. And you're living in um, slum colonies where, you know, there's like six of you sharing a really, really tiny hut with a tin roof, Uh, what three taps for like 500 people, everybody kind of, you know, goes to shit and bathe on the banks of the Hooghly River. Um, it's, you know, a- and you spend the entire day like carrying, you know, bricks on your head or across your shoulder. And then you're paid at peace rates and you're basically tied to a labor contractor. So you won't get your wages until the end of the mm. season. And then, and then you might not get, you know, your wages. A lot of stories of people yes. coming back with no money at all. And so this is this is the condition of a lot of people who are who are already migrating out and I think that what this in this the the counterinsurgency is doing is driving even more people into this precariat workforce and eventually when the land is taken away from them, uh, you know, that is all that they'll have. They won't even have, you know, their land or their forests to 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 um to have that kind of little bit of independence from the rest of rest of the world or to have their autonomous communities um, not that they're you know uh, fully autonomous anyway, but whatever little whatever little resources they that they have are being taken away from them um, you know, it's, it's bound to be the case that some are going to get co-opted, some will get co-opted by the mm-hmm. mining companies, some will get co-opted into better positions, some will yeah, get. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I think what you're going to see is a greater class differentiation, so greater inequalities within these communities, but an overwhelming mass. That's going to be part of, you know, what well, is actually going to be pauperized uh, is going to become, yeah, not only a precarious labor force, but it's really going to be totally pauperized when I first went uh, into these uh strongholds I never imagined that I'd even meet uh, a Maoist you know insurgent mm-hmm. uh, what I was really interested in was the adivasis the indigenous people you know how had their lives changed as a result of you know these grand shifts that seem to be happening these guerrilla movements coming into their area um, and but so i I had no idea what it's going to be like uh, and but then as I said earlier you know I realized that kind of the guerrillas were everywhere. They were in every single household and everybody had a story of somebody who was with them. And so they, um, o- over time, uh, I, you know, the this is a very highly organized movement, a very hierarchical, very secretive, to- totally clandestine movement, right? Yes. And so over time, the leaders of this movement at various levels started to come into the villages where I was living. And then they were obviously watching me uh, from afar wondering who is this crazy yes. woman yeah, yeah, living yeah. out here, you know, almost like we are. And they took an interest in me. And so they started calling me to to meet me in, in the gorilla camps in the forest. So over time, you know, I started to get to know a people within the movement and um so i was there for a year and a half and so there was a lot of opportunity to spend time mm-hmm. with different groups in different in different parts of the forest and then um there was uh that I, I started interviewing all the leadership and getting more mm-hmm. and more interested in the movement itself and then there there was this one leader that i really wanted to um, meet and um he was not very well and he couldn't come to these forests and so i've been saying please please you know i want to meet him he was a central committee leader. So um, one day I got this call. uh, This was when I was living back in the city and I got this call and they, you know, this call said, you know, put your you know come to so and so bus stop in this part of the country which is a different part of which is a different state actually <laughs> yeah. and uh and 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 um so so anyway i did that and uh and then i was led into a forest camp in that state uh where this leader was and i interviewed this leader and uh and then i stayed in that camp and then i realized that there was a platoon that was leaving that area going back to the area where i had le- lived and they they always marched you know on foot at mm-hmm. night because for safety because they couldn't you know march march in the daytime and so uh, I said you know uh please please can I go back with you you know it's it'd be, it had been about a year and a half that I'd been there and I said um, uh, you know I, I it's like kind of the last piece in my puzzle I I, I, I I haven't I haven't kind of done this I really want to do this you know I really want to march with you and so um you know they they basically yeah they weren't um they weren't very keen actually they were worried about about my safety mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and um be- and because you know these counterinsurgency operations operation green hunt it was called was really in full force in fact when I'd gone to that camp a huge um uh, the, you know I just passed the security forces doing doing uh, you know these going in with their battleships around yeah, yeah the, doing these sweeps and had just kind of evaded them and so they said well you know uh, and so I just kept pleading and then anyway they they one day yeah <laughs> one day I, yeah that's right I got this box you know box came to me uh, in this camp and inside were a pair of green shoes because I'd forgotten to bring any shoes with me. I just thought I was going to interview this leader for a day or a night at the most. And then, um, yeah, then I knew that I, they, they'd said that I, they'd discussed it enough and said that I could go with them. So I went with them and... Um, One
0: question I have is, do they all wear the same shoes?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So like shoes and clothes and everything, they... Yeah. they they, you know, they ordered them in the season and then everyone gets the same <laughs> shoes and everyone gets the same bar of soap. And
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and something that was funny about the PKK is that they all wear this a type of cheap sort of Turkish shoe called mecaps, which are just like sneakers that everyone has. And they don't match the rest of the uniform. You know, the colors aren't right or anything like that. But obviously that there's some guy who either makes these bootlegs or, you know, there's a sympathetic factory owner or something, or they just know a wholesale connection. And so they all get the same pair of mecaps, And that's like, that's sort of, you get your uniform, but you don't get the mecaps for like a little while, basically until you lose your actual sneakers. Um but, but yeah, I, I noticed, like, it's funny. There's
1: another part to that as well, which is, like, um, you know, the idea of that equality. So, like, mm-hmm. you can't really differentiate yourself from each other. So yeah. you've got to have the same pair. You know, everyone's got to have the same. Of I course. think PKK yeah, yeah. Is, all, is also very similar in that respect. So it's not just about, you know, the everybody, a supplier being able to supply everybody with these shoes but also the idea that because uh, there was this one occasion when one of these leaders you know he had a very very bad ankle and he kept mm-hmm. like uh he kept uh, um yeah he kept he he kept hurting himself and falling down and I just you know I just say why can't you just get a pair of boots which you know actually go up to your ankle so you get better ankle support mm-hmm. and he just resolutely refused to do that because he was a senior leader. He didn't want, the, the reason was he didn't want to differentiate himself, have special treatment above the rest, you know? Yeah. And,
0: uh, yeah. yeah. That's, it's, it's funny because I just assumed everyone, like when you kind of think of gorillas, you assume of somebody, you assume somebody's going to wear some boots, you know, because often the environments that they, they, you know, traverse generally boot type environments. Um, but I think the sneakers are sort of like a good symbol because they do have to be, I mean, it's, they have to be light and they have to be agile. And also it's cheap. You know like they don't have the generally these movements don't have a lot of money for 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 you know a nice pair of combat boots or anything like that uh, as opposed to the state
1: We could talk about this for a long time. I could tell you <laughs> about. <it. laughs> How you're supposed to wear these shoes, you know, because <laughs> you have to lace them up like n- not, you know, tight enough so that they uh-huh. stay on, but loose yeah. enough so that, that you can flip them on and off, you know, uh, all, yes. all in one go, right? Yeah. Because you do, you can't afford to spend time basically, you know, uh, spending ages putting them on. You have to be able yeah. to run, you know. So I was told off on several occasions for not, you know, wearing mine too tight and taking too long putting them on and not taking them all off, yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, so what was this march? Cause, cause just, just to, um, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you in my email, but I, I, I went on a, just a one night long, very, uh, sort of strenuous night march of, over the border, uh, from Iraq to Syria where we crossed the Tigris or the Tigris, uh, in, in, I think it was, I can't really remember cause I was delirious for half of it because nobody brought any water and I couldn't smoke cigarettes. But, uh, it was, it was, a, it was. I, I'm not exa- I mean, you can see me in the Google Meet. I'm not the most athletic person in the world. Uh, and it turns out neither was anybody that I was marching with. All the gorillas and stuff were tired of shit, too. Um, but, but it was, um, I don't know, there was something about the experience that, that, that obviously I related to you when, 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 you know, when, when you talk about it at different points in the book. Um, but was it, was it like, I don't know, I don't know. For me, it, it was, it was, you know, all the obvious emotions, it was dangerous or it felt dangerous. It was, you know, sort of thrilling and also, uh, disorienting because, you know, I was, I was, these people that I was with were, had done this March before. I mean, this is a pretty common path that they were taking. Um, but, but I was still, you know, pretty out of my element at that point. Um, and how did you feel when you were going on this March? I mean, obviously it's a hard physical journey. I mean, you said 250 kilometers. That's a, uh, a long long walk uh but but like how was it um i don't know how did you feel essentially during it
1: it changed a lot over time i mean it was You know, parts of it were absolutely amazing, covering this entire territory, huge territory, walking through agricultural Mm -hmm. plains into forests. I'd never walked in the dark without a light of a torch, learning how to walk without a torch, uh, you know, learning how to find the trail in front of you. So at first they said, you know, you can use a torch and it's okay. You know, if you use a torch, one light in the dark doesn't matter. But if, you know, 30 of us are using a light, you know, we'll be will be spotted so I was allowed to use a torch, but then I realized that actually um, it was much better. It, you know, you, mm-hmm. if you lose the torch or if the torch throws you, it's actually much easier to 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 walk in the dark, to see in the dark. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, you can once you start picking out a trail, you know, you can follow that trail. That it 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 it's a, like a white line. Trails are white lines uh, in the dark, and so yeah, learning how to do that, you know, the physical kind of. Um, it was very of course it was very hard and the the by the by by the end of the march um you know i was we were so tired- I was so tired, I was so tired yes. <laughs> uh, and they you know earlier in earlier parts of the year when I had been interviewing some of them, they used to tell me about sleepwalking that they all sleepwalked and i really i I thought that they were you know joking mm-hmm. but then uh, I you know I found myself like nodding off yes uh, and sleeping and walking and sleeping yeah. and walking you know and and I uh, you know I realized I was sleepwalking mm-hmm. uh, as they as they did but um, but also it was, you know, part of it I felt um, I, I just had to kind of give in to them, right, that they knew what they're doing and they're basically, you know, they're they're taking me through these territories. But then uh, by the day, I think by day six or so, when we still hadn't got to our destination, which we were supposed to get to, you know, some days before... Uh, you know, clearly something was wrong, and um, you know we were we we were lost uh, at, at <laughs> points, and then last night we were totally lost, and that was like really, um, yeah, it was actually very frustrating. I was really frustrated, you know. And I, over the course of the march, I started to doubt the platoon commander, who I didn't like very much anyway. I knew him mm-hmm. from before, and um, he uh, he was he yeah I started to doubt what, whether you know he was actually setting a trap for us and we were going to walk state, straight into the arms of the state um, forces and so I there was a more senior leader who I, I, I had got to know much better over the over the years um, there as well and I was getting really annoyed with him his name was Gyanji you know he's one of the central characters yeah. of Night March and I was like getting very annoyed with Gyanji saying Gyanji you know I mean why don't you just take over over, you know and like mm-hmm. lead this thing and this guy vikas this platoon commander who is an adivasi uh yeah i was very i was very very uh, annoyed with him um and um yeah i think you know it, it so the heights so like the dangers kind of went you know they they feeling of danger—it it ebbs and flows, but it really escalated by the end. Um, so yeah, all those things that were really beautiful, sleeping under the stars—you know—all uh, of these things started to like at the by the end of it, it was like, oh my god, I'm sleeping next to a pair of very, very smelly feet. And mm-hmm. yeah, the <laughs> romance—the the romance
0: sort of wears off after a little yeah, bit.
1: Yeah, the ground is very, very stony, and you know how many more nights. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, also, think, you know, this realization that these guys are doing it every single day like they're doing it you know they have to keep moving every night mm-hmm. they can't stop this is a non-stop journey for the for years and years and years uh you know and i and i always thought well there, there was always a plan to get me out of those areas you know if something went yeah. wrong there was always a plan that i could always like leave those areas and so I guess I was always putting like my circumstance in comparison to their circumstance. And that kind of gives you the courage to keep kind of going. Uh, <laughs> except when you start doubting and, you know, them themselves, like at, by the time of the last last night, I think by that time. Yeah. But what what can you do in that time?
0: <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Ganges, and I thought he was a really interesting character in the book because he's sort of like... I guess brings to mind like a really classic image of a student uh, who is introduced to, you know, revolutionary uh, theory and practice in college, or mostly theory probably in university. And then who goes and lives among the people and sort of uh, goes underground, cuts ties to this family. I think he, he's from like a middle-class background, you know, cuts that off uh, and becomes a, uh, a gorilla and a gorilla leader. Uh, and, and and that, like, what I really liked about the book is that you're, it's, it's – it, this march in particular, but just also the people you met really kind of sum up these almost different archetypes of characters within these revolutionary movements, um, you know, like peasant youth, uh, you know, uh, tribal youth, and, and sort of uh, often these uh, – you know, it's like the cliche of the, of the, you know, urban Maoist who goes, you know, to the countryside to live among the people. Um, can you tell us about that a little bit, just these different types of characters you met there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you, 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 you got it all in one, you know, um, the march really, okay, it sounds, you know, great and, uh, you know, a, a good story to tell. But in fact, that's all you know, that that it's a metaphor. It's a way for me to introduce you to all these different types of people who are, I think, archetypal people, not only of this movement, but many other movements, who, who come together for very different reasons. So in this case, there is Exactly what you described, you know, the kind of uh, middle class, um, high caste, um, uh, very educated, intellectual uh, leader who. Got attracted to um, revolutionary politics back in his youth. Who started reading, you know, Marx and Mao mm-hmm. and uh, Lenin and you know a whole range of kind of revolutionary theory. Who actually, Ganji was um, uh, thought actually he would joined the state. He thought he's going to he's he was actually going to write his exams for this Indian civil service, which is you know very prestigious yeah. um, civil service, and 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 you know he would have. He would have got in, um, but then at some point he realized that he couldn't serve the people through the civil service. That um, you know, uh, he, he there there was no option but to to take up arms because of the inequalities that were being generated by the state, because India hadn't really gained independence, you know, according to him, it was just Mm -hmm. another class of people, an Indian elite that had taken over. Um, and so he, um, so yeah, so he, he got more and more drawn into this underground movement and, you know, ended up, um, yeah, going into the villages, going into the forests, you know, places like the Adivasi forests. He'd never really encountered the Adivasis before, mm. uh, before, you know, these last 20, 30, 20, 20 years or so when he was posted in, in those areas, had no idea. Um, and they were almost like out of place in, in, this, in this in this world. Um, and, but on the other hand, there were, um, you know, my bodyguards, uh, 16-year-old Adivasi youth, (laughs) Yeah. who mm-hmm. the year before had been in the brick factories for six months of the year. And, you know, um, this year had gone to live with the Maoist uh, guerrillas instead. And, you know, he <laughs> he was there really because he'd had a fight with his father uh, over a glass of spilt milk. And, uh, you know, he got very angry and his father had like slapped him. And so, you know, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm off, I'm running away. You know, I'm going to live with the guerrillas. You know, the guerrillas by that time had become like another home in the area so there were a lot mm-hmm. They, they, it, it was like he was going to live with an aunt or an uncle and there were a lot of these stories of Adivasis who, you know, Adivasi youth especially who had fallen in love with somebody in the movement or who, you know, who'd, who had a problem back at home, a fight they were having in the family and this Naxalite movement was almost like a refuge, you know uh, um, a place where you could go and spend a bit of time, you were you were treated well where you don't mm-hmm. have to go and carry bricks on your heads you know yes you were carrying guns instead but um that uh you know and, and in fact there were these these girls who used to um laugh at the girls that had been in the in the next light movement and they'd say oh you know you know she's been in, in the movement because she's grown fat uh, <laughs> you know you you because the, the gorillas you know they kind of hang out and they don't really do very much and uh, yeah. um, you know that's the stereotypes that you know they were running in the at uh, the in the adivasi villages but then there was like the adivasis who stayed on there were people who you know who went into the movement maybe they went in for you know um idealistic reasons or maybe they went in because they were had a problem back at home but over time they started to um ...benefit from the movement uh, in terms of, you know, so, so there were, the movement was involved, how did it fund itself? It funded itself through getting involved in various kinds of um, uh, contractorships around state development schemes, extorting money from these development mm. schemes... Taking over the contractorship of um, BD leaves, you know, used to make the Indian cigarettes, BDs in these areas, uh, oh, huh.
0: uh,
1: which came from these areas. So they got, um, and there was a whole kind of system whereby, you know, a percentage of the money of these of the contracts for these BD leaves would go back to the Naxalites. Revolutionary you know, taxes. Yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 people would have to, you know, and but but then some of the money was which should have gone into the movement was then pocketed by some of the commanders and so there Mm -hmm. was you know this kind of corruption seeping within the movement as gianji said you know they were creating their own frankenstein's monsters uh and 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 um basically um so so there were people who like vikas this platoon commander who it turned out you know had uh had had built himself a fine house in the city had got himself mm-hmm. you know these uh four-wheel drive vehicles these land rovers which you know none of these the, the maoists uh, knew about uh so he'd been kind of pocketing money away from the movement for his personal personal gain and so so there were all of these different types of people so there was the you know high caste intellectual with an agile mind Gyanji. there was uh, you know the sweet 16 year old boy Kohli, my um uh, the Vasi foot soldier, but then there were people like Vikas who were, you know, betraying, it turned mm-hmm. into um, these these yeah these Frankenstein's monsters as as Gyanji called them. There were women who'd gone in there, also, you know, for various different reasons. Who um, some who were, you know, working for women's liberation, who came from higher caste backgrounds or who came from outside the area, but also adivasi women who were who were going going into these movements, yeah. um, staying for a little while, coming back out, yeah. So a lot of um, yeah a lot of variation and different kinds of people coming in and which also show the kind of contradictions within the movement and ultimately become part of the ways in which such movements fall apart which aren't just to do with the state repression but also what's happening internally within these w- within these movements
0: yeah that's something I I, I I really recognize a lot in this book uh, is, is is the archetypes because I mean they are archetypes I, I met people who fit basically every description of a person that you have in there, uh, you know, including, you know, a 16 year old sort of native boy, um, a, and a, uh, somebody who was pocketing money who, uh, in fact sold, uh, me and several other people's information to, we believe the Turkish government and took off from Iraq to Turkey. Uh, and, 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 and sort of these, uh, these middle-class intellectuals who, who sort of forsaken it. In fact, the one that I'm thinking of in particular was, uh, uh, unlike most other people in the party, still a Maoist, um, and 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 was reading Mao at the front and stuff like that. Um, we got to wrap up in a second, but I was I was curious to know to 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 know what you think of the Naxalites' place in modern India, because you start off the new preface to the book with saying that India is on the road to becoming something like a prison state, um, and 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 it, and it's true. I mean, there there You know, we, I, we mentioned this earlier in in the interview, but you know the modern Indian government has just a plethora of internal enemies, whether, you know, they are, they are, they are, uh, you know, Muslims, people they think sympathize to Muslims, um, whether they are, uh, uh, you know, Dalits who are protesting or whether they are uh, Naxalites or Adivasi. Um, where, where do the Naxalites fit in here? Because it seems like the specter of the, you know, the urban Naxal, you know, is, is one thing. And, you know, that's, it's, you know, they sort of, um, use that as in the same way that like many on the right wing in, in America use like Antifa or whatever. Um, But uh, although to a much uh, sort of deadlier extent, um, what, what is the actual Naxalite movements place in, in sort of the modern Indian landscape?
1: So um, to clarify, there's a number of Naxalite movements. So there's, you know, this communist party of India Maoist, which, you know, split into various different groups, or different, the Communist Party of India, Marxist, Leninist, who's got different wings, and they all kind of claim a heritage, you know, to Naxalbari and to the Naxalite movement. But um, essentially, uh, I mean, I think most of these movements, some are parliamentary, one of them is parliamentary, many are non-parliamentary. Most of these movements, especially the CPI Maoist, which is the one that I worked with, the biggest Mm -hmm. one, um, they... they, um, you know their their entire analysis of the Indian economy is based on a kind of very outdated idea of what the Indian economy is. You know, so they're still kind of operating these ideas that oh, this country is semi feudal and semi colonial, mm-hmm. and you know they're not like it's they they're, they're they're kind of stuck back in the day uh, in terms of how they're thinking about revolutionary struggle, you know, forces that they ally with. And they all know this, you know, they know that they've got to have a big rethinking of what... What is required in the current era for creating a new kind of democratic politics, a politics that's going to take us beyond uh, these this, these regimes of extreme inequality that we have right now in India uh, and extreme repression? Um, but yeah, they're you know they're reduced to a small pocket of forest and mainly they're in the prisons, and mm-hmm. so there's no space right now to have any kind of rethinking or rejuvenation. So I think more uh, right in terms of the actual Naxalite, if you're the at CPI Maoist, they're pretty much um, you know that there's there's also these generations in the forests which are probably you know Adivasis in the forests who who may be turning more into indigenous movements. So there's other movements that are emerging from the mo- Naxalite movement, indigenous movements, women's movements. They've given inspiration to a lot of. Different kinds of struggles, which may may have their history in the Naxalite movement, but don't see themselves as Naxalite anymore. But more broadly, the whole idea of Naxalism is getting this new revival in modern in modern day India as a way to kind of maybe unite dissenting forces. Mm-hmm. But you know, this is a very different kind of idea of Naxalism to you know the CPI Maoist or this kind of armed warfare that traces itself back to nineteen sixties and to Mao and you know yeah. to to marxism leninism so uh yeah i think um it, it's it's a mo- it's a moment when you know clearly the left different forces on the left need to need to unite and um you know the the arms are a big problem for the cpi maoist right now and they 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 you know and they are there are big there were as night march shows that they they destroy the movement itself without without the state forces forces being there um so um yeah, I think the future has to lie in a kind of different kind of left politics, which um, this movement, the, the Naxalite movement, has kept alive, uh, but not in but not in the form that the CPI Maoist um, represents.
0: Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Shaw's book Night March is being reprinted right now, so you can go pick up a copy. You were saying it's it's been in print in America, but you're saying it's getting a paperback edition in India itself.
1: That's right, yeah, there is a paperback already in America, but yes, the Indian paperback has got a new preface, uh, yeah. uh, which is out on Jacobin, the the, the, ma- the magazine, if you'd like to read it, yeah.
0: How I, w- I was curious, too, how is it received in India?
1: Oh, yeah, it's been um, extraordinarily well-received, actually, uh, from different sides. I mean, I guess... What's uh, yeah? So I mean, it was shortlisted for you know the New India Foundation Prize and the Tata Literature, uh, yeah. found, you know, like it, it awards were were, were um, you know longlisted it. So um, and I and it's had like very good reviews across all of the papers. Um, uh, so yeah, it's been very very well received. Much more. Um, I'm I'm kind of very surprised. Yes. Um, but um, and it hasn't had you know, it hasn't faced the kind of um, comeback I thought it might get, but it's partly because i guess it's a it's a scholarly account it's based on you know a huge amount of scholarship which tries to make accessible that scholarship to wider wider audiences through these characters so it's in fact a very sympathetic but deeply critical account uh, of what's happening you know in central and eastern india so um yeah I, i it's um it's been surprisingly, it's been surprisingly <laughs> well received, and and um, and yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very grateful for that actually, because the main point is, you know, there's been so many myths around this movement, and so many myths around what's happening in in central and eastern India, and also in the international world, just nobody knows about what's happening in these yeah. areas. So, it's been able to, I guess, provide some kind of window uh, into. Uh, into into issues that are burning and hugely important um in the world right now
0: well thank you thanks so much for joining us
1: thank you thanks so much for having me
0: All right, you fucking animals. So that was uh, that was Doctor Alpa Shaw, uh, the author of Night March among India's Revolutionary Gorillas. Uh, I think it's out on University of Chicago Press. Uh, don't fucking quote me on that. I the book's across the room, and if I got up, it would make a lot of noise. The microphone would pick it up. It would be it'll be a total nightmare. Anyways, I'm gonna put the link below it. You can buy it there. I liked it. Very good book, and it's 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 a breeze to read because I know many of you struggle with such things. Anyways, uh yeah, we will be back uh we will be back shortly with some uh some new exciting episodes. Anyways, uh the, I get to do oh, I get to do the fucking Liz thing. All right, check this out. I'm Brace. I'm Liz. This is I'm also producer Young Chomsky. Bye-bye. Bye
1: just, just, just